What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Cliff Hudson is a business executive best known for serving as chairman of the board and chief executive officer of Oklahoma City-based Sonic Corporation. He also served as the trustee of the Ford Foundation and is a past chairman of the board of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. I really enjoyed this conversation with Cliff, and I think you will as too. In this conversation, we discuss scaling businesses, building a brand, intellectual curiosity, the value of being a master of none, and why flexibility and adaptation is so important. Before we get into the episode, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Exodus. It's an absolute game changer in the crypto wallet space. Exodus has a desktop wallet that features live charts and portfolios, a built-in exchange, and 24-7 support from real humans. They provide all sorts of online help desk and that customer support, and then their mobile wallet easily syncs with your Exodus desktop app. It allows you to exchange crypto in just two taps, and it monitors market movements on the go. If you're looking for a headquarters for your crypto experience, you've got to go try out Exodus. Exodus, E-X-O-D-U-S dot I-O. E-X-O-D-U-S dot I-O. Go check out Exodus, desktop or mobile. They're there for you. I'm a big fan and you will be too. Go to Exodus.io today. Next up, who do we have but Diginex? They're the first company with a cryptocurrency exchange to be listed in the United States publicly. Their ticker in the NASDAQ is EQOS, EQOS, and they are the first crypto company that you can buy public stock in. They also have a crypto exchange called EQOS, which has been built to institutional standards, but is available to everyone. You can trade Bitcoin and Ethereum spot, as well as Bitcoin perpetuals, and you will get a 5% discount on all your fees if you sign up using EQOS.com slash POMP. EQUOS.com slash POMP. You can go in the description and click on the link or EQUOS.com slash POMP. Diginex, the first publicly traded cryptocurrency exchange in the United States under the ticker EQOS, and you'll get 5% off all of your fees if you sign up going to EQUOS.com slash POMP. Lastly, we have Sovereign, S-O-V-R-Y-N. They are an uncensorable, no KYC, Bitcoin trading and lending platform, and one of the very first Bitcoin native DeFi platforms. Finally, you can start trading your Bitcoin in a permissionless and decentralized way today just by connecting your private wallet. You can earn interest on your Bitcoin and get paid for lending assets via the Sovereign Decentralized Exchange. Get up to five times leverage on long and short trades using USDT, BTC, and Bitcoin-backed stablecoins, all with no KYC and always maintaining control of your keys. Sovereign, S-O-V-R-Y-N, is one of the safest DeFi platforms on the market built on the RSK Bitcoin sidechain. Block times are around 30 seconds and are merge mined with the Bitcoin blockchain. You can join today and get your first month's trading fees completely free. That's right. The first month trading fees completely free on Sovereign. You just have to go to Sovereign.app slash POMP. Again, S-O-V-R-Y-N dot app slash POMP or go in the description and use the link there. S-O-V-R-Y-N dot app slash POMP. Sovereign dot app slash POMP. And if you are one of the first 100 people to do it, you will claim a $100 bonus. That's right. They are giving away $100. The first 100 of you who hear this and go and sign up at S-O-V-R-Y-N dot app slash POMP, you get $100. Go do it. Sovereign dot app slash POMP. 
and you can thank me later. All right, let's get into this episode with Cliff. I hope you guys enjoy it. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I have a very special treat for you today. Cliff is here, and uh, he's one of the rare people who comes on, and uh, he's done the work. He's uh, he's run a real business, scaled it, been super successful. So thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to come on and uh, talk. Great. Good to be with you today, Anthony. Appreciate the opportunity. For sure. Let, let's just start with your background. Um, you... Grew up where, got into law, and eventually ended up at Sonic. But kind of tell us the story of how you get to uh, to the business. So, um, grew up in North Texas um, until finished elementary school. Uh, adolescent years were spent in Oklahoma City. Yeah, kind of a pivotal point, that really formative in my life. Um, we, my family moved from Wichita Falls to Oklahoma City after my dad lost his business um, due to uh, a variety of circumstances. And, uh, but he lost the business. He lost everything. And uh, I was 11 going on 12. And uh, to see that in my family, literally uh, lose our home, you know, and um, uh, that was impactful for uh, all my life, you know. And uh, I remember when my youngest kid was 11 years old and, and I told him, you know, when I was your age, uh, we were evicted from our home. And he, my, my kid just couldn't believe it, just couldn't fathom the concept, you know. So anyway, he took a sales job in Oklahoma City uh, that was, he was better off being at the intersection of I-40 and uh, Interstate 35. So we moved to Oklahoma City, and within two or three years, he was back in business for himself. He was really a serial entrepreneur and and, um, uh, very impressive the way he recovered. But um, at any rate, so uh, on the plains, North Texas, Oklahoma, uh, um, here through undergraduate school, went east for five years, was in Washington, D.C., took a law degree at Georgetown University, lived in Baltimore, Maryland for a couple of years, practiced law while my wife was in graduate school there. Then we returned to the Plains. Uh, my big idea, just because the economy was so hot, and what I didn't realize, it was overheated by a by an oil boom that was debt-fueled. And so within a year after our moving back, all that came unwound. I spent a couple of years in a business law practice here, but I saw that uh, going, I saw it going down because of the, the, because the economy is going down. So um, my view was I either uh, had the um, opportunity to um, try to get, maybe get inside a company that wasn't tied to the oil business uh, or frankly, leave the region. And uh, at this point I was, um, uh, late 20s, my wife was still in graduate school. She'd continue on with her studies. She's an epidemiologist and eventually became a you know, PhD in epidemiology. But uh, I decided I needed to kind of stay here and help, um, help support her get through that process. <clears throat> so I left law, private law practice, went to Sinek. Uh, at, I was 29 years old. So here I was, I mean, amazingly enough, 29 years old and general counsel of a public company called Sinek. Um, how I got into business, our company went through two LBOs. They talk about that in the book. Went through two LBOs in the late 80s. 
when took it public in the early 90s, I was central to all of those in, in terms of helping orchestrate them. And, um, and, and then after we went public, I decided I was going to leave the company, told the CEO, and this is a compressed version of the story, but once I told him I was going to leave, he said, well, why don't you stay here and run the company? And so I became COO, and it was a gradual process in terms of learning about the company. Uh, from the time I joined the company until I became COO, it was, it was like nine years, so it's not like it happened overnight, but I'd had an opportunity to really learn the business. And... Uh, um, and so that's how I got onto the business side and a year and a half, I'd say after I became COO, I was running the company day to day, my boss left and, uh, you know, rather suddenly, but he left the company and the board turned to me and said, you want to be CEO? And I thought, well, I'm already running the company, so why not? You know? <laughs> and, and same day they named me CEO and, and I, I was CEO for the next 23 years. So, so. When you come in as the general counsel and you eventually become the CEO, uh, those are two very different functions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you're doing it at a time when uh, there's multiple transactions going on, uh, the company's growing. Talk through a little bit just as to, uh, in hindsight, what were the key pieces uh, either of learning um, or people that helped you transition from that general counsel role into eventually the CEO role and then kind of set you up for success to, to thrive as the CEO of, uh, of Sonic? Great. Yep. So, um, uh, so, um, one, I got to say, uh, uh, I think one of the biggest factors was, uh, I was young and because of that, when I joined Sonic, I'd been practicing law four years. If I'd been practicing law 20 years, I not, might not have been malleable enough to move over to the business side, but I was 29 and it was a relatively small company and I was aggressive and curious and, always pushing out, you know? So, um, uh, uh, the team was light from a, uh, management, you know, quantity and quality of management. And so it really meant that I was often able to fill a void, uh, uh, on special projects and so on. But it also meant that when he wanted to buy the company, uh, you know, a CFO might've stepped in, but we, one, we didn't have a CFO, uh, technically. And, um, uh, uh, this meant that I really just got to learn the business. Um, my boss wanted to buy the company and um, uh, he wanted to do that from the outset, but it was, that was hard to pull off. But he, I think part of his thought in hiring me with a business background and then maybe expectations beyond an ordinary lawyer from the standpoint of just life expectations, I don't know. Anyway, he, he saw in me somebody could help him do that. So the process is to a great degree, I joined the company in 84 and 86, we did buy the company. And, and to do that, to structure that and, and sell it to lenders and so on and so forth, it really did um, take more understanding of how we made money, didn't make money, how we, how we could change that going forward. And because the company was hit a bit of a low point when he joined the company and I joined the company. Um, but we were able to buy it in, um, I got uh, invested, you know, as a stockholder. So yeah, but that gave me a little bit different view of things. Um, by Within two years, we had a lot of motivation, contractual motivation to buy out our institutional partner that had joined us in 86. Uh, and three years into the deal, the uh, price was going to go up. And by the, besides that, they wanted out. They needed to show a return to their investors. So um, 
uh, two years into having bought the company, we restructured the ownership and, and, um, and I was able to pull out a lot of, of my investment. Uh, I, I had to pull out a severe multiple of what I'd put in two years before. And you know, suddenly this gets your attention because in that 88 recap, not only, I mean, just to give you, and I talk about this in the book, it was all public too. But I, I um, in, in cash out of pocket in 86, I put out in 2,500 bucks. And two years later, I pulled out over $600,000. And uh, so one was the leverage with a leverage buyout. And two was the turnaround that started occurring in, in, in the value of the company was exploding. So suddenly here I am, early 30s. Now I've got a kid. My wife and I uh, had had our first son. We're both 30. And um, uh, so uh, now I'm now I'm part a larger part of a company, larger ownership. I went from one percent ownership to eight percent ownership, and had pulled out this capital, which you know here on the plains during an oil bust, watching bankruptcies all around me. That was an extraordinary thing in my life. So it gave me a little bit more motivation to come to understand this thing. And um, uh, a couple of years into it, our new institutional partners wanted to take it public for their own purposes. Uh, they wanted to liquefy. So they turned to me, they said, advise the team on how to go, how to go public. So I took a central role in that for the next you know, year and more. And we were successful in taking it public. So once again, two LBOs, an IPO, dealing with all aspects of this, but particularly from a corporate finance standpoint, I didn't have a finance background, but I'd gotten an extraordinary you know, on-job training, you, you would say. Um, and uh, so this was my introduction to the business and thinking more like business and how to you know, strategize about growth of the business. What would I do with the team, meaning the management team? You know, if they were my management team, who would go, who would grow, and so on and so forth. So uh, this was this kind of seven or eight years after I joined the company. It actually was in a short circuit stuff earlier. It was in 92 that my boss came to me and said, you've been general counsel for eight years. How would you like to be CFO? And, and it was pre-Sarbanes-Oxley. And, and I kind of thought, fine, this would be, a, this would, I'd, I'd learn more doing this. Had good team in place and, and a good uh, uh, auditors and so on, good board. So I said yes to that. And then it was a year later when I said, okay, I'm going to leave. And he said, no, no, become COO and just run the company. So um, this was a, it was a, a gradual process, but a very real one of personal and professional development for me uh, before I was made, um, before I was made CEO. Yeah. It's a fantastic story. Uh, while you were running the business, both as COO and then eventually CEO, uh, the business had pretty explosive growth. It went from you know just over a thousand stores, I think, to over uh, four thousand locations. Uh, Drive-in sales, you know, up uh, double digits, uh, you know, year over year, um, and, and just by all measures, uh, a very successful uh, oversight of the business and, and the growth that it enjoyed. What was the secret to success? Was it improving the product? Was it better marketing? Was it investing in the brand? Uh, was it just simply hiring great people? Like when you look back and you say, we had this, you know, epic run of success. Here is the playbook. What do you say? Well, in a way, all those things you just listed, um, the answer was yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, a series of things that came together just as I, um, just as I became CEO 
and then you know the question is what do you do with them but we 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 drove them like crazy so what what were two of the things that came together okay i, I should say three but they all they played in a huge way uh the first was while i was coo i conducted over a 13-month period i conducted license renegotiation with our uh, franchisees with our franchise leadership because um, the, the licenses were coming to closure in the late 90s and our franchise leadership and us, but really our franchise leadership was very concerned about that because they did not want to get to the end of the license agreement. And then, you know, all of them have scores of stores that, you know, could, could lose their licenses. So they wanted years in advance to renegotiate this. And we were willing to because we built the value of the brand. So this was 93, 94. And I just moved into the COO role, literally, as that, as that began. And so 13-month process, um, the franchisees felt like it was painful. I felt like it was enormously successful because they got what they wanted and we got what we wanted. They wanted uh, elongated terms and they wanted more protected trade radius around their stores, um, um, meaning a little enlarged. It was one mile and they wanted it larger in different circumstances. And, so on. So those are their two big points in negotiation, longer term, better protection, trade radius around the store. Uh, we wanted more authority as a franchisor, a modern franchisor, which we didn't have, and authority to require, you know, single uh, agency for advertising, uh, in, uh, authority to require buying off of a single contract for goods across the system, uh, authority to require every few years a, a trade dress upgrade at the store level. So. We got all these things in there. Plus, we we got a modern rate royalty rate, uh, which was had been quite outdated as well. So, that was that was one thing. Um, simultaneously, with that we were leading them through a process to talk about where does this brand need to go, and and the two fit together perfectly because the license agreement gave us the authority. In a way, it, it's a it, this difference in authority of a de jure versus de facto. De jure being the law, de facto being, you know, building uh, credibility, street cred with folks, you know. And so, um, the authority we were building, we it really had, in a way, had both of those because the new license agreement was the de jure. The new license agreement was the law that we had, but a process that we were taking the whole system through meetings and talk about facilities and 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 uniforms and menu inconsistencies and so on was the street cred piece. So that by the time we reached the finish point on this street cred piece, we had a, a new menu, we had new uniforms, we had a retrofit coming down the pike that they knew they had to do. And these two were beautiful because we engaged them in the de facto process, but they knew the whole time that we had this new license agreement and we, if we had to, we had the hammer but we didn't want to use that, of course. So these are the two of the, the strongest things. But I would also say from a people standpoint, we had a marketing person in Patty Moore and with the new dollars we got from the license renegotiation, we rebuilt several parts of our company, including our purchase and distribution. And we, we bring in, brought in then a guy named Drew Ritker and, and uh, Drew was fantastic on, on negotiating with these new requirements we had under the license agreement that everybody buy from the national contracts. Patty started driving same store sales with some new promotional activities because we required under that new license agreement, new deal, everybody had to be on the same menu. So 
and and and, and by the way, this is the so license renegotiation, strategic focus with the marketing and and more broadly, and then a third element, a franchisee, and I say this in the book. 94, a franchisee came to me and said, you got to help me out. And he was a good operator. And I said, why? What's the problem? He said, some of your, I got a great program that's helping me. He said, things are healthy in Texas and Oklahoma, but they're not healthy in the Carolinas. And I got a great program that's keeping me alive. And your guys are telling me to shut it down. I said, well, tell me about the program. And so he proceeds to tell me about an ice cream program he's got. And I say to him, well, what does your top store do with this ice cream program? He said, well, my top store does 30% of its sales in ice cream. I said, you must be kidding me. I said, well, tell me more. I said, don't change anything. I'm going to send our marketing folks out there and you show them what we're doing, what you're doing. And so he did. And a year later, we rolled the thing out. We didn't shut him down. We rolled it out across the whole system. Now, so here what we have is new authority under the license agreement to require retrofits and this kind of stuff. And by 96, we have sales exploding, but more so profit exploding because we've got this new frozen and fountain favorites menu. And, and so profits begin exploding 96 into 97. And we can require everybody to do the single promotions across the system. And we've now brought on this retrofit. And so once you get into, I became CEO in 95. And in, in, um, in 96, uh, and 96, you start getting some benefit of Drew Richter's purchasing. 97, the drinks and ice cream come into play. Average store profits from 96 to 97 jumped 40% for the operator. I'm not talking about the company. I'm talking about the average operator in what was then 12 or 1400 stores jumps 40% in one year. These franchisees were suddenly just rolling in the dough. So what does this feed? It fed rapid rollout of a retrofit across the entire system. And what else did it feed? Rapid expansion of new stores. And, and, um, and, and we negotiated under the license agreement an ascending royalty rate. We said, okay, we've got the old time royalty rate, but if we grow your sales, we want a higher royalty rate. And so we as a franchisor started getting disproportionately positive benefit from all this. And so, and so Anthony, when you talk about this run up, when I left the system, it was began to push five billion in sales. But when I became CEO, it was about eight hundred million. In 1997, we hit for the first time ever one billion in in system wide sales, all stores, franchise included, one billion in '97. It had taken 44 years for the business to get one billion. Four years later, we doubled it to two billion. This is the consequence of this kind of compounded same store sales, new new stores, et cetera. The, the business just exploded. And we had 97, we had a billion, 01, we had 2 billion, and 05, we had 3 billion. So it, it was on a tear, you know? And as a result, so was the company. And we split our stock from, from 96 to 06. We split our stock, a three through two stock split. We split it six times in 10 years. And wow. it, it, it was, it was just on a tear. It was a great run. It was fun. Yeah. And, and obviously the success, the success that you had, uh, not only gave you a bunch of experience and skills, but, uh, this book that you wrote, uh, master of none. Um, I think the part to me that stuck out the most wasn't so much the individual stories or the experience or the skills. 
it was the mindset and almost like the philosophical take you have on business. Um, and literally master of none uh, is kind of a counterintuitive uh, type piece of advice where most people say, hey, you need to be an expert, right? You need to be an expert in the law to be the general counselor. You need to be an expert in finance to be the CFO, uh, or you need to be, have an MBA and be an expert in business to run the actual business. Uh, you seem to have drastically benefited from actually being well-rounded and not having just one expertise, but kind of having a, a command of multiple disciplines. Talk a little bit about why that's been so important to you in your career and, and how that made you successful. Well, uh, so uh, the title of the book is Master of None. The subtitle is How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. So in some ways in this book, the subtitle is, is uh, equally important to the title, if not even more so. But, you know, this is the That'd be an awfully long title to the book, How Jack All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. So it kind of turned it upside down. At any rate, um, so uh, has it been important to me? Uh, I'd say it has been all my life because I, uh, as growing up, uh, I was active and uh, formally in music, in many ways, church music and, and, um, and uh, uh, school programs, music programs at school. Um, but I was also active in sports and, you know, I, I, I excelled in each. Um, I was also uh, a good student. Uh, unfortunately, I was a good student often without trying hard. And uh, I, I might have, uh, really in all my endeavors, I might have benefited from somebody pushing me harder. But uh, usually when somebody pushed, I walked away, you know. <laughs> so uh, I, I was an avid reader, good student. Um, uh, uh, you know, in my book, I talk about really one of my first leadership positions, which would not be customary. I think when you think about a, an executive of a public, public company, my first leadership position was president of the Boys of Glee Club, you know, when I was a junior, when I was in junior high, I was in eighth grade. And um, that actually was the confidence that my teacher placed in me really kind of helped my self-concept evolve to in a positive way uh, fairly quickly. That was a very nice thing at 13, 14 years old. Um, but, um, you know, what was my next run of leadership? It really was student, student government in my high school setting uh, in no small ways because the high school was undergoing a tremendous rapid change because of court-ordered desegregation. And uh, so that was a huge growing experience for me. Um, so, but I've always had a wide degree of, wide, uh, degree of interest yeah, I enjoy, not unlike a lot of people, I enjoy food, enjoy travel. Um, but so I think coming into the business, uh, I probably discounted my ability or, or my capacity to move into a leadership position because I didn't see it as leadership. I viewed it as business management. I didn't have business education. My undergraduate degree was in history. My graduate degree was in law. I did go into business law, granted. But it's the difference between business law and, 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 and business school, you know, and no MBA. And, but what I didn't appreciate was that I had um, good education uh, from a standpoint of critical thinking. Um, uh, in some ways, uh, history and law can, are good counterparts to each other. The history does let you go back and see, you know, where um, events occurred and can be analyzed in such a ways to, you know, draw conclusions or see different paths that might have occurred, you know, historically had leaders done one thing or another. Um, 
law is an analytical piece of, of finding similarities or where people don't, other people don't see them or, or finding distinctions where others think that the situations are identical. And, and uh, the business law is a little bit different from uh, trial work, but in many ways, the critical thinking that's, that forces you through going through a legal education really makes that kind of separation and, and the, critical, the critical thinking piece uh, move to a very different level. So I think these really aided me when I got into business because as opposed to not wanting to look back, some people don't, as opposed to not wanting to look back and do a post-mortem on something you post-mortem on something you screwed up, my reaction is no, you must go back and look at what you screwed up to not repeat it. So it was a different approach, I think, to understanding the business and how you could manage it. Um, so I was, I think I was always a generalist. Uh, I enjoyed, you know, I played piano, but but didn't take lessons. I played guitar, but I didn't take lessons, you know. And um, uh, so this was, this was just kind of me, you know. And so as I looked back over my career, I did, in business career, I did rely on strong people. I had good teams. I delegated effectively, um, brought them resources, uh, worked hard to keep things aligned uh, in terms of objectives and, and activities. I, I say that because what I'm, what I'm saying is functional behavior in an organization, keep the team aligned and then make sure the adequate resources are placed in order to drive the specific direction. And so as I look back at my career, late in my career, and then thinking about the stories and you know, considering a book, uh, I did come to see myself you know, as a business leader. You know, okay, I had to be a good manager here and there and throughout. But the main thing I saw was I was running a franchise organization, uh, small independent operators of our concept uh, who were very independent minded. And you had to find ways to sell them continuously on staying aligned. You couldn't just order them. You could, but that's a that's a short term gain. So um, I, I think uh, over time I can look back and uh, see that um, uh, you know, kind of with that that arc of history in my own life, enjoy enjoying a wide array of activities, and not seeing that as an impediment to growing a company like Sonic. Instead, seeing as a as a, a foundation for a good leader. And, and seeing it as an empowering uh, element of my own life rather than a limiting element that, that jack of all trades. Yeah, one of the things you talk about is kind of this like narrow focus is unsafe and boring. And so I think that that's like a really interesting framework because the boring part is uh, more a um, uh, personal enjoyment right? Of just right. who wants to be bored their whole life yeah. doing one thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but the right. the un, unsafe part, I think, is counterintuitive to people. So describe a little bit why you think of it as unsafe to have a narrow focus more rather than a more generalist or, or broad view of the uh, uh, business world. Well, I think a lot of this depends upon the area you want to go into in life, because if you do decide you want to be a brain surgeon, um, then, then I think you you better get pretty specific about what you're studying and what you're doing every day. On the other hand, uh, if you decide you want to um, go into even even something technical, uh, and, and let's just say in the technology world, you better approach it with some flexibility because the pace of change there is so fast that if you are narrow with what you approach, even in the technology field, 
um, you know, if you're narrow in what you approach, I mean, you could be irrelevant in two years, you know? So from my standpoint, um, you know, my view kind of back up and get off the brain surgeon thing or, you know, uh, it, it, 12 years old. I mean, I thought I was going to be a cleanup uh, batter for the Yankees, but by the time I was 15, I knew that wasn't going to be true, you know? So, so what's my prep? And so from my standpoint, it was good to get a good education about how the world works. And, um, and, and as I said, also the critical thinking skills and um, uh, use these skills uh, to um, uh, be open to um, opportunities that come along and ones that feel right for me, intuitively feel right that I can embrace. But the, the um, so in the book, yes, the discussion about being too narrow can, can do two things. One, the world can just bypass you. But the other thing is to the extent you're too narrow, your head's down to focus, not your head's not out, you're not keeping options open opportunities can pass you by. And so my belief is with being that generalist and keeping your head up and being open to new opportunities, um, you, 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 you gotta be able to see those opportunities to seize them. And I think it's the narrow person who thinks they can create their opportunities for themselves. I think most opportunities we don't create, what we do is prepare and then uh, the old adage that um, fortune favors the prepared, you know? And so if you are prepared, it looks like you're lucky or whatever, but if you're prepared and your head's up and your eyes are open, uh, you can seize opportunities that come along that you would never see otherwise. And I think the more narrow you are, more narrowly prepared, the more narrow in your work, more likely you to have your head down, narrowly focused, you're going to miss opportunities. And there's also a better chance the world's just going to blow past you is your skills become irrelevant. So that's the gist of the book, I think, and, and at least that portion of it. Yeah. And, and the part to me that seems so interesting is like this idea of exploration leads to breakthrough, right? Like, like you, if you just sit and do the same thing every day, it's very unlikely that you are going to uh, have any major breakthrough, create any sort of significant inflection point. Uh, but that exploration, that intellectual curiosity really kind of carries the day. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. A lot of it is intellectual curiosity. You got to be a curious person about how the world works and what's what's about what may be about to occur, why it's going to occur, and how you're going to handle that. You're going to embrace it. You're going to avoid it. You know. And so I think uh, being curious and open, those two elements are, are two of the most critical elements of having a um, a rich life. I think. Yeah. And in well, in your profession or personally, if you do the opposite you know, closed and not curious, you're going to have far less interesting business career, but also less interesting life. For sure. Is there anything that you've done um, or anything that you can suggest to people in terms of how to increase intellectual curiosity, right? Like for you and I, who I think are generally uh, or naturally intellectually curious people, uh, we can just say, hey, be intellectually curious. But there's some people who just that's not their inclination Anything that you could think of that uh, could help people become more curious or, or kind of at least get started down that path? Well, uh, it depends upon uh, who uh, you are, who I am that you're talking about. If you're talking about you know, within an organization, as an example, I often, very often work to make sure that 
Um, I was including um, a, a broad cross section of our team in in uh, in all kinds of activities, so so as to get a good functional behavior, a good integration of effort, and work as hard as possible not to have silos. So this is, if I take your question to be, what could a person who's already leading an organization do to help the organization achieve what you're talking about? You know, I mean, one of the things that I did is not so uncommon now, but 20 years ago it was, um, we were designing a new headquarters building and the building is not what has to be new. It's the layout that is different, but I'd been, uh, I've been, by the time we were designing this, I've been CEO of the company six or seven years. We were in a um, high rise downtown, Maine and Maine. I had top floor, corner office, private bathroom, marble floors. You had to go through my secretary space to get to me. Um, and what I found was the longer that went, went on, the more horribly boring it was. I mean, the job of the CEO is isolated. You're isolated enough and it's lonely enough as it is. If you make it physically, isolated, physically lonely. It's even worse, you know? So uh, we were designing new space. I'd, I had um, picked up and visiting a couple other CEOs and their, their businesses, a different way to approach that. And I kind of pulled together uh, uh, combined elements of what I saw in these other places. So when we designed this new space, I, I, I designed it first of all, so there's not a, a single corner office in the whole building. Every corner was a was a conference room. Secondly, um, uh, chain, went to modular furniture, so it wasn't about who got to fight over what size desk or what size chair. Everybody in the whole place had the same chair. I had the same chair as everybody else. And my floor was not in the corner, wasn't even on the top floor. I went to a, a, a middle floor and I sat in the middle of the building. I had a desk out on an open floor using the same chair everybody else used. If I needed privacy, Behind my open desk was a was a room that had a clear glass on all four sides, and so that if I needed quote privacy, I stepped into my glass room, and and all the employees that were going by could see, you know, business being conducted, etc. Um, so my objective there was to blow up the silos and have the physicality of the of the office space. Um, work against building silos so that all employees could see each other every day. And, and it was an enormous contributor to just that. And so, but you can find processes as an executive leader, you can find processes to break down walls, to include people from other disciplines and key projects that you have and so on and so forth. Okay, well, that's for the executive leader. For the individual, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think within an organization, an individual can, uh, you know, what you can do individually, of course, is just explore things through reading or, uh, or, or hobbies or otherwise to get into areas you're, you're not naturally comfortable with. But within an organization, you know, volunteer for task forces, even propose task forces that are cross-functional within the organization and make sure you get into those task forces, that you meet other people in the company that you engage in tasks that are beyond your department, beyond your comfort level to uh, help you grow, et cetera. So it is a question of acting on your curiosity. It's one thing to have your curiosity, it's another thing not to act on it. Because you don't act on it, then, you know, okay, well, it's an academic point. 
So, uh, it, but if you're if you are a naturally curious person and you're in an organization that's run by, as silos and there's no way around it, well, you know, you probably need to look for a new employer. But um, uh, otherwise, I think you you work to try to break down the silos, work cross-functional manner. And this, I think, can be really stimulating for a curious person. Yeah, it's so fascinating to hear about uh, that glass room that you had where you would uh, kind of step in for privacy. Uh, when I worked at Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg had one and we called it the fishbowl or the aquarium, right? Because basically yeah. kind of you, right. you feel a little bit like you're inside of that. And, right. uh, and it was fascinating because, you know, somebody who's the executive of a large company uh, can go in there for a phone call, can go in and meet somebody that nobody knows, uh, or literally at one point, the prime minister of India came and sat there, right? And everyone's walking by and, and, and you wow. uh, kind of see the um, you know, the business being conducted, as you mentioned. So, so it, it, it does uh, have a very different effect than, uh, oh, the CEO's office is up on the top floor, right? It's almost like the right. physical proximity um, right. that can have an impact. When you think today uh, for a young leader um, who aspires to kind of have the successful career that you've had, um, what is the advice if you were mentoring them? What are the things outside of what we've talked about already that you kind of just, hey, keep this in the back of your head, or uh, these are the things that I wish I knew when I first got started um, that you would share with those young leaders? Well, I, uh, depending on the organization, depending on what you're wanting to pursue, but you're describing it as an organizational leader. So by definition, it, it this sounds like, feels like um, um, a circumstance in which the, you know, the generalist can, can benefit um, rather than the, uh, narrow, the narrow specialist. So I think the, you know, at a really younger age, um, the, the issue is get a good education and and um, um, particularly in areas and on paths that do demand, you know, critical thinking skills and analytical skills. Um, uh, beyond that, um, uh, you know, life is not target practice, you know, life's a journey, you know. So don't try to aim at something that you think is going to enhance your path. Uh, listen to your instincts about uh, so in other words your intuition you know what what sounds right to you what feels right to you and go on a path where things click for you you know instead of trying to pursue something that you think um, uh, uh, from an external standpoint you know on a resume or whatever something that looks good you know pursue something that that feels right to you from your own intuition and and your your own talent and skill sets, and uh, and then beyond that, uh, remain open to opportunity that, go, that comes along. Keep your head up, your eyes open. Remain open to opportunity. Uh, you know, uh, one fellow that um, uh, I've talked to about my book, he endorsed endorsed the book, and I had him in my own podcast. Bill Fromm out of Kansas City that has formed several companies in Kansas City um, that are headquartered in Kansas City, including those international scope. Bill makes the point, uh, you know, just say yes, you know, which is title one of my chapters. Just say yes, because his comment is, you know, when you say no, door is closed, you know. Now, whereas if you say yes, um, uh, and, you know, if you learn a month or two later, six months later, that you just really can't pursue this path, you can always go back to somebody and say, listen, I got to shoot straight with you. I thought we could do this, but I don't think we can do this, you know. 
I thought I could cut this, but you know, I think we need this additional talent, whatever. But the point is, um, learn how to say yes to opportunity and, and figure out how to do it. Because if you say yes, you're going to get full engagement. If you say no, you just close the door. Um, so these are, these are thoughts along the way to a, a person younger in their career. Uh, the, the other things that you would say are, are a little bit more obvious and they're, they're, um, they're almost jingoistic, but they're true. And that is, you know, uh, uh, work hard and, and do the job right, you know, and make sure the job gets done well. Uh, but those are somewhat generic, but they're accurate uh, because if a person thinks that uh, I got my college degree and now somebody owes me something, you know, they're going to be uh, a little surprised and a little disappointed, you know, with that, with that mindset. One of my favorite business stories ever is uh, the gentleman who ended up coming up with hot Cheetos. Um, he was a, a janitor at the uh, at the business before he uh, he came up with that idea. And uh, he tells the story that um, he was working somewhere else and he gets the job as the janitor. And on his first day as he's going to work, his grandfather says to him, you make sure that everyone in that building knows Amunez, you know, mop the floor. Right. Yeah. Just to basically do your job, have pride in the work that you do. And right. that's the advice he's getting literally to go mop the floors. And one day later, he ends up building, you know, what ends up being a couple hundred million dollar uh, product line for uh, Frito-Lay. And yes. I, I think that there's a lot of people who say, oh, that's luck or, you know, that's this or that. And it's no, it's the same things that uh, you took to work with you around hard work and pride in your work and things right. uh, as a janitor. He's now applying to, you know, something that people think is much more aspirational, right? But it's yeah. the same exact qualities. Yes. And he, he was also a guy who was in within an organization where, you know, he, one, he would keep his eyes open because the CEO, I talk about that example in my own book, that because the CEO invited that kind of input. He developed it at home, you know, um, uh, uh, based on kind of some street food experiences that it had, and then called the CEO who took who who took his call? Yeah, some organizations that wouldn't occur. Well, it's like your ice they, cream story, right? Yes, 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 exactly. The people that were trying to shut down our franchisee on his ice cream were two of the most senior people in our company, and they told him the reason he wasn't going to do it was you know, just to say it. He, they told him that's too much like Dairy Queen, and we don't uh, we don't want to do it. And yet today. Uh, my, my, I've been gone from Sonic for two years, but my hunch is that um, at this point, uh, Sonic has to be doing six or seven hundred million dollars worth of ice cream. And wow, at, at that time as a system, we probably did twenty-five million. You know, yeah. But it it wasn't just the increase increase in sales. Um, my then CFO liked to say anything. He said, "I love any promotion where it's something mixed with air or water." You know. <laughs> Because, because the product margins were just extraordinary. And um, that's, that's how, with our frozen fountain favorites that we rolled out in 96, spring of 96, 96 to 97, average store profits jumped 40%. Unbelievable. You know, changed everything. But we did, you know, back to your original question, we built on that, built on that, built on that. Everything that occurred, we used it to leverage something else. And, and the business just flat took off. Just a fascinating, just different way to look at the business over and over and over again. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I wrap up each conversation with uh, three questions. Uh, the first one is a little bit more serious, which is just what is the most important book that you've ever read outside of obviously the one that you wrote? 
most one of the most I could say maybe one of the most important books I've read outside of um, the one I wrote. Um, uh, and just a book that sticks out in your mind as having had an impact on you. Well, I remember as a kid reading a book that kind of showed that even a kid could branch out and do uh, interesting and curious things and didn't need to be limited by age or circumstance. Um, but I played baseball as a kid. I enjoyed baseball a lot. As a kid, I read a book, Dave Palmer's Diamond Mystery. Okay. Um, a book about a, a young ball player, part ball player, part sleuth. And, um, and uh, it was a, um, it was a fascinating book that, that uh, I mean, it was appropriate for my age, but it really kind of, one, it got me into enjoying reading all that much more. And two, um, uh, kind of set me on a path that, uh, you know, you, you, you can really be kind of quite aspirational. But in my adult life, I've mostly read biographies. Um, and, you know, in some ways, going back into my 20s, um, a, a series by Stephen Ambrose, on, on uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, was one of the more fascinating and delightful uh, sets of books I'd ever read. I think it was either a, either a two or three book series, but Ambrose was a great author and, and uh, I read I have read quite a few pieces by him, but in some ways I'd say the Eisenhower biography was one of the most enjoyable uh, and just watching his life growing up on the plains and and eventually becoming president of the United States, you know. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, the second question is uh, a little bit more fun. Um, sleep. So in 2020, I made a massive uh, focus on, hey, I probably should sleep more. I was one of these people who was flying around, took 120 flights, uh, literally, I think, was sleeping kind of four or five hours a night. Um, and I met the uh, the founder of Eight Sleep. And uh, Mateo was like, hey, man, you probably should sleep a little bit more. <laughs> uh, what is kind of your sleep routine uh, as the CEO of Sonic? And then uh, since you've left, is it something where you slept eight hours every night? It just kind of got what you, what you needed? How did you sleep? I don't think I've ever slept eight hours a night regularly. And I don't get more than eight hours of sleep, but just a few times a year and certainly not continuously. Um, I'd say, you know, so one thing I'd say is at, when I was at, uh, uh, just going to my teen years, 11, 12, 13 years old, I started delivering newspapers. And this meant getting up 3 a.m. every morning and delivering newspapers, come back, go to back to bed at 5 a.m. Um, the number of nights now still where I wake up at 3 a.m., work for a couple hours and go back to bed at 5 a.m. is more often than I'd care to admit to. But but this is um, uh, this is a little bit of a pattern. I'd say in my years as being CEO that um, the most common deal was five to six hours a night uh, sleep, maybe catching up a little bit on the weekend, but five to six hours a night. And um, I I try to get more than that now, and I and I enjoy <laughs> I enjoy getting I enjoy not having to rush off to work per se, but. Um, uh, or as it is these days, working from home anyway. But um, uh, I, I, unfortunately, I still wake up at 3 a.m. I work for a couple hours, but I also now go back to sleep often for another three hours or so. So not uncommon for me to get seven hours sleep now, but it's um, often, often improving. Uh, <laughs> it's improving. I know the sleep experts would say, look, you need continuous sleep. But, you know, 
I can't do a whole lot about it. I wake up at 3 a.m. and I'm wide awake, you know? Yeah. I, I, well, I don't fight it. I don't fight it anymore, you know? I just get up and read or work on some projects and until I get sleepy and I go back to bed. And, and usually it's six, uh, 90, 90 minutes or two hours of work. Um, yeah. And I get a lot of work done in that two hours. <laughs> Nobody around to bother you. <laughs> yeah. No phones ringing, no nothing. Absolutely. I love it. Uh, the last question is a little quirky one. Uh, aliens, are you a believer or a non-believer? Well, uh, it, uh, it, it's my first thought to try to come up with some quip there, but uh, <laughs> I, as quickly as I do, I'll, um, I'll regret it. So um, I, I do think the, um, you know, the universe is a fascinating thing and um, um, it, it's, hard for us to imagine, you know, what all uh, really is out there, you know, because we are limited to our own reality to the greatest degree. And so we try to reinvent things, you know, even to the extent we think about them being there, we reinvent them in our own likeness, you know. So uh, on the one hand, after saying uh, it's a big universe and the likelihood that this this globe is the only one with life on it. That uh, seems um, there's no reason to be believe that has to be the case, you know. Um, and on the other hand, uh, the more uh, practical usage of aliens that we see in movies and you know other fearful sort of things, um, uh, I don't. I have a hard time going there, you know. But um, uh, there are interesting things we all see and read periodically about uh, things that appear in the heavens that uh, uh, lack lack any explanation. Um, so, so who knows? I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not into uh, uh, the alien. I'm not into thinking about that or pursuing it. But nor do I totally discount it. So, yeah, I, th- I think that is the most rational way to view it. Is uh, Big world, probably life somewhere, but uh, I doubt that they are the little green men that uh, showed up in uh, in some movies. So I think uh, I think you're more on it than uh, than you realize. I just uh, hope they're. This, I hope they're if they come around, they're jacks of all trades. You know. That's my, <laughs> that's my hope. I love it, Cliff. Listen, thank you so much for your time. I, I've yeah. uh, I've read through the book uh, Master of None. Uh, how a jack of all trade can still reach the top, and uh, it is absolutely fantastic. And as I started off the, uh, the conversation. Uh, it's just very obvious that you've done the work and, uh, and, you know, frankly, just thank you for taking the time to write it all down and share the knowledge with folks. Cause I think, uh, you know, folks like yourself who, uh, who have literally decades of experience building companies successfully, uh, there's just so much information that you have that you can share with others. So, uh, highly recommend everyone go get it. And, uh, just thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to write the book and then have this thank conversation you, as well. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate uh, being on your program today and, and I'm happy to be with you and happy to talk about uh, one of the things I like to talk about. That is my business, my career, my book, you know, so, okay. Uh, Take care.